I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Having these long and deep conversations requires an immense amount of focus. And sometimes I try to use coffee to get that focus and I get a little too hyped, to be honest. You might even notice sometimes when I start an episode, I'm like, ah, I'm too hyped. That's because I'm OD'd on caffeine. I'm going to be straight up with you. So I was super stoked recently to find this company called Candor, which you can find at choosecandor.com that make this amazing coconut matcha nootropic latte. So it's got just a little bit of caffeine, but it's got a caffeine synergy. So the other ingredients like L-theanine and E-G-C-G are molecules that pair really well to tone down the caffeine. And it tastes delicious. So it's got coconut milk and MCT oil that help it have this nice creamy texture and taste. But those fats also slow down the delivery of the caffeine in there. So it's a really cool nootropic stack that you drink and taste delicious, but doesn't get you psycho, which I really like. So if you want to check it out, go to choosecandor.com. And the audience code is lifestylist, which saves you 10%. That's choosecandor.com. Over the past 232 episodes, I've been your host and guide through the worlds of biohacking, spirituality, and personal development, asking some of the most profound and cutting-edge thought leaders out there what makes them tick. Well, today, we're going to flip the tables and the mics around as my friend Matt Maruka, who's a past show guest and who's also next Tuesday's guest, as he invited me to Rick Rubin's world-famous Shangri-La Studios in Malibu, California, studio, incidentally, that's been used by the likes of Eric Clapton, the band, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Joe Cocker, Metallica, Kings of Leon, and on and on and on to record an episode for his Tetragrammaton podcast. It was so fun to hang out in the same studio where all these amazing musicians have recorded all these albums and uh, use the same mics and couches that they did to record this podcast. It was sort of a return to my rock and roll roots, you could say. Well, anyway, this episode was going to be released on Matt's podcast, but as things sometimes go in the world of podcasting and rock and roll, his project was shelved due to a number of circumstances, all of which being positive. He basically just got busy with Raw Optics, his company, and he's traveling the world doing badass stuff. But Matt and I both loved this conversation so much that we felt it was worth sharing. So here it is for you. This is what we talk about. Tetragrammaton, a four-letter sacred symbol, a way of saying God without saying God as used in the Old Testament. Becoming a childhood drug addict, then teenage rocker during my dark Hollywood years. How drugs quite possibly saved my life and how the process of overcoming addiction led eventually to the Lifestylist podcast. How I went from simulating life to actually experiencing life in all its fullness. Why I feel more high now sober than any point in my life. The fact that there are no mistakes on the road to self-mastery, only lessons and teachers. Escaping the symptoms of poor health and getting into true wellness. Why at this point in my life, at the time of this recording, I had been celibate for more than a year. Discovering who is the watcher, the observer, watching your thoughts. Why we might not need to eat vegetables. 
the art and energy behind fashion and what it meant to spend some time in that industry. And then finally, podcasting as a personal growth vehicle. So this is a really fun conversation. Matt's one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, this talk was very candid and very real. So I think fans of the show will kind of enjoy the flipping of the microphones here and um, just hearing me and Matt talk like no one else is in the goddamn room. Speaking of Matt and me talking, next Tuesday, we've got a very special epic episode with Matt recorded in London called Sunlight versus Junk Light, the ultimate battle for human health and longevity. That comes out Tuesday. And that's my most recent interview with Matt on all of his work around light. It's truly fascinating. So if you enjoyed last year's episode with Matt as guest, which was called Extreme Biohacking, the Millennial Edition, you are going to freak when you hear this one. It's a very special show. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss it. So today, Matt and I invite you into my life, my mind, and soul to learn what makes the lifestylist tick. How's it going, Luke? Welcome to the Tetragrammaton podcast. I'm doing very well, Maddie. It's been a fun day. I'm trying to pronounce the name of the show. Yeah. (laughs) You've told me a couple of times and I'm like, I keep trying to think of the name and I'm like, oh man, that's a tongue twister. Like four in Greek and grammar, gramma meaning letter. So it's four letters, Tetragrammaton. And it refers to a four letter sacred symbol, uh, or I should say uh, an abbreviation that was used to refer to God in the Old Testament because it was considered unorthodox and unholy to write the name of God. So they would actually abbreviate God with the four initials that would uh, abbreviate Jehovah or Yahweh, which was the Hebrews term for God. Um, the Phoenicians had a tetragrammaton that they would use to write the name of God. And so did many different peoples back then. And now there's also some sacred geometric symbols associated with it. And this was all of great interest to so, Rick. So it's basically the coolest word ever. More or less. It's a really, really interesting <laughs> way of saying God that's without awesome. actually saying God. Yeah, but, um, that's a loaded word. So well yeah, done. It's yeah, powerful. But, um, but dude, what a, great, what a great day. We got tons of sun. We're drinking spring water, lighting incense, running around barefoot. My dog's here cruising around. I mean, it's like, what more could you ask for? We're in a, we're in a legendary studio in a building that's just magical in terms yeah. of its history. It's really neat to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoy it. So it's good to have you on the show this time because as you know, and you just told the cameras, the tables have turned. A couple months ago, we were in New York at the top of the beautiful hotel looking out on the Freedom Tower and the Empire State Building. And you were recording me and I was just a little guy, just, you know, not sure what I was going to talk about, just trying to get this message out to the world. And since then, it's been successful. But now I get to ask you some questions. So I want to start with just a little background on yourself. You know, where are you from? What do you do? Do you help? Do you host a podcast? You know, (laughs) what kind of stuff do you do? So just for an audience that may be largely composed of musicians, artists, um, people who haven't necessarily dabbled into health and lifestyle so much before, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a story that I've told quite a few times because I've been on a lot of podcasts since I started my show that you alluded to. And I'm always trying to get the story more concise, you know, and how I ended up at the place that I am. But uh, ironically enough, I'm actually a former musician, um, which is kind of why I moved to Hollywood when I was 19 and started playing in bands and things like that and still play, but more just as a hobby. You know, you could call me a bedroom guitar player, although I was a bass player. But uh, anyway, 
the story sort of started out uh, 1970, born to a hippie mom from Berkeley uh, and a cowboy dad from Aspen, Colorado, was born there. Uh, born into a pretty crazy family, a lot of dysfunction there. Great people, love them. We've all healed and recovered from that, but uh, was born into early divorced, moved to California with my mom and experienced quite a bit of trauma as a kid and um, lived in lower income areas and was just exposed to a lot of violence and drugs and what you could just call low vibe, low energy <laughs> environments and people and got really into vandalism and crime and arson and pornography and drugs and all of this kind of stuff as a result of um, result and reaction to the trauma that I experienced as a kid. And eventually, well, not eventually, quite quickly, actually, that uh, led to some pretty serious problems with drugs and, uh, and the law. And I got sent away at 14 years old to a boarding school in Northern Idaho, which uh, was sort of a not a military school, what would you call it? A reform school of sorts for a lot of rich kids. And I wasn't a rich kid, uh, but I was there with, you know, like one of the Waltons of Walmart and Barbara Walter's daughter. And uh, my dad was able to pay for that school. And I got sent there, but it was just, you know, a bunch of kids that were screw-ups and we were all sequestered in the school for two years. And it was a very cult-like environment. However, I was partially reformed in that school, and that was the first awakening I had to personal development and self-help and to some degree spirituality, although I got out of that school and was unaware of the fact that I was already a full-fledged drug addict at 14 years old. So I got out of there, fell back into my old ways. I eventually moved to Hollywood when I was 19 and got into the rock scene uh, in 1989, 1990, in LA and uh, and Los Angeles at that time was a lot different than it is now. You know, it was it was literally overrun with gangs and like all the gangster rap of the early '90s. I mean, that was Hollywood. That was LA. I mean, of course, a lot of that mm-hmm. came out of South LA, but it was a rough place and there was a lot of drugs. I'm sure there still are, but I'm just not sort of in tune with that wavelength now. So I'm oblivious. Everyone I know is like into health food and is sober, you know, and getting tons of sun and just, you know, being super happy and spiritual. But it was kind of a dark uh, time in, in Los Angeles. And I moved there to play music and I started hanging around a lot of musicians that I had worshipped as a teenager and guys whose posters I had on my bedroom walls at my mom's house and stuff and moved to LA. And I'm just like in the middle of this rock scene got a fake ID at 19. The ID was this like five foot four Latino guy, very dark skin named Manuel Luis Cordova. I always like to give him a shout out in case he's around somewhere. (laughs) Thanks for the fake ID, bro. I found this like California ID on the ground and use that to get into clubs and start playing in bands and had a really good time. But as I said, it was a really dark period in, in Hollywood. And I just got really caught up in the drug scene and, you know, drinking beer and smoking weed turned into a lot more hardcore drugs. And by the time I was 26, I was just totally suicidal and unemployable. And I, I'm 6'2", I, and now I weigh 185 pounds just looking at me now. We're obviously sitting here in person. So in contrast, I weighed 135 pounds. So if you can imagine me, wow. I was a walking skeleton and I was yellow and just extremely angry and full of fear and anxiety yeah. and depression. And that's kind of when that part of my life ended. And at 26, I... I uh, checked myself into a treatment center and I got sober and that was over 21 years ago. And I'm still thankfully uh, in a sober state of mind and body, 
Uh, well, mind, not all of the time, but body for sure. Yeah. But so began, Matt, my journey and what led me to start my podcast and do the things that I do. I really got into health and cleansing and herbalism and detoxing. And uh, I just realized that my body was so toxic. And then once I started getting that sorted out, I realized that my mind metaphysically was also very toxic and that I was very spiritually disconnected. And so uh, I've been on a journey of spiritual exploration and yoga and all types of meditation and going to India and trying every superfood and what's now called biohacking technology known to man. And I'm sort of now on the recovered side of that trauma, having dealt with that through psychotherapy and all of the practices that I do. And now I'm not motivated so much to work on myself by the avoidance of pain, but more by the pursuit of pleasure and the joy that I am able to gain from sharing what I've learned and what I continue to learn with other people. And two years ago, after working 17 years in Hollywood as a fashion stylist, which is what I ended up doing for a career, I retired from that and started my podcast, The Lifestylist, and uh, interview people like you <laughs> and share other, uh, other people's knowledge with the world. You know, So it's like, I, I've been a very good... Um, purveyor and curator, I think, of ideas and people and teachings and products and things like that over the years. And so now I distill them down in a relatable way and share those with people and uh, no longer run around town dressing musicians yeah. and stuff like that. That's I fantastic. Used to do. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I'll mention for the show that the reason I'm here where I am right now, and I guess the reason you're here too, is because of you ultimately, because I was on your podcast and then Rick, whose studio this is, heard it. And so we both landed in a really interesting spot. Isn't and that so crazy? It's, it's amazing it's the way so things funny. go. And I just want to, you know, I just want to give you a shout out for being a younger guy and you know, to let the listeners know just how talented and bright you are. And they're going to know that from listening to you as the host of a show, but it's also reflected in the downloads of my podcast, The Lifestylist, because I periodically go in there and I review what shows did well. I try to figure out if it was the guest, if it got shared a lot, if it was the title. You know, you're always kind of looking at what you would call almost the SEO of your podcast, right? And your episode, um, Libsyn started their uh, rating, not their ratings, but counting their downloads over from November 2017. On the date of this recording, we're now in, uh, what are we, June 2018? So from December 17 until this moment right here, you're my number three top download. And I've had, you know, Neil Strauss on the show. I've had David Wolf. I've had Jack Cruz, Dave Asprey, um, uh, Sharon Salzberg. I mean, I've had some huge names, Rich Roll, a lot of amazingly talented people and some of them quite famous in their own right. But for some reason, your episode, dude, is at the top of the charts on my show. So it's just, it's been really cool to watch you kind of, meet all of these people and and become a voice for not only I mean you're a few generations behind me I'm 47 mm -hmm. you're not I think when I named your episode the millennial edition then someone told me he's like dude he's 18 he's not a millennial he's this other thing millennials yeah. are like older Gen Z generation yeah, okay. Z <laughs> so you're you know I kind of I kind of use that keyword to get some you know clickbait out of it but um, oh it worked <laughs> I honestly didn't know I thought you were a millennial but a lot of millennials listen to that show and they're like, cool, maybe they might, someone might not even relate to a 47-year-old guy like me who's into all the woo-woo spiritual stuff and all the geeky biohacking stuff, but they can listen to you because you're younger and um, you know, you're just of a different generation. So it's, yeah. it's super inspiring to be yeah. able to 
kind of, you know, be a part of, of your progression into your, your brand and the glasses that you wear that you, you made yeah. me, that you make. Yeah. And so it's, it's cool. Yeah. So with this podcast, I want to make it something that's super interesting, right? This is the second episode I've ever recorded. I want it to be juicy for our listeners. And I think it's interesting to note that a large portion of this audience is probably going to be people who come from a background like you came from. You know, maybe not such an easy lifestyle growing up, maybe some issues, maybe music. Largely, I think music will be a, a theme among our audience. And then drug addiction and drug issues. I think that's going to be yeah. a huge theme. So basically, what you've told me now is that you come from a background of struggle and even drug addiction and that you've overcome that largely, which is something that I think a lot of people never do. I mean, I, I don't have experiences with that stuff. But if I may, if you're comfortable elaborating, would you mind going a little deeper into, you know, how you fell into where you fell, um, you know, how things were for you in those times, like the way you felt, and then maybe if you could elaborate a bit more on how you kind of got yourself out of that and how that relates to where you are now with your show. Oh, great question. And it's funny, Matt, because when I first started doing my podcast, as we were talking about earlier, I had recorded a bunch of episodes and it took me nine months to actually put it out. I had yeah. maybe 15 shows in the can. And I, it took me so long to, to, to put out because I didn't know how personal, how revelatory I wanted to be about my past and about my addiction issues and mental health issues and a lot of the things that I've struggled with. And part of some people's podcast launch is doing episode one. And that's sort of your pilot where normally what we do is tell our story. And uh, that's kind of the idea that I had. And I wanted to do my intro story, maybe an hour, half, hour and a half where I tell my life story. And that's episode one, which I ended up doing. It's called Return of the Jedi. And, uh, and at some point I just went, you know what? Is the point here for me to look cool and to be perfect and to have my shit together? Or is the point to help as many people become enlightened as possible. And I don't mean enlightened like a, a, you know, a saint or sage living in the Himalayas, but more enlightened just to become awake. And I finally was just like, you know what? I think that there's value in, in my story and that I have overcome a lot of adversity and that, that I'm still continuing to overcome adversity that I discover along the way. Albeit, while I'm not addicted to heroin at this present time, I'm addicted to my goddamn phone. So let's talk about that. Like, let's get real. Instagram is the new heroin for me, you know? So uh, I appreciate your question and I'm absolutely happy to talk about it. And, and it even does relate to music, really. You know, those are so interwoven in a weird, uh, t in a sense, twisted way. Because when I was a kid, you know, what happened for me, and sometimes I'm vague about this. I just say, oh, I experienced a lot of trauma. And I did in a general way, just divorced family, very disjointed family, not, didn't have the nuclear situation at all. And um, just my parents had a lot of their own issues that they were going through. And as I said, we're great now and they've worked on their stuff. And I think we're much healthier than we've ever been collectively as a family. But I didn't have like a normal kind of childhood. And I also suffered some pretty serious sexual abuse as well. And when that happened to me, I was five or six years old. Some of the details are vague and obviously it, it you know, it's irrelevant as to what exactly happened, but, you know, I was abused as a kid. And when that happened to me, 
there was no way that I could process that. And I started to really feel ashamed and I started to feel different. And I started to feel like an alien, you know, I got kicked out of, it happened around first grade. I immediately got kicked out of school for beating some kid up, started lighting fires, started vandalizing, just went off the rails right away when that happened. I mean, you could, if there was a graph of the timeline of my childhood, you could see like abuse, kid goes crazy, you know? And back then these things weren't um, talked about as much. There wasn't uh, the availability of therapy. It wasn't like my parents were going, hey, has anyone, you know, has anything inappropriate happened? There was no communication about that. There was no framework for a kid to say, hey, if anything weird ever happens, know that you can tell me. So I never told anyone, you know, until I got sent away, as I said, when I was 14. And in that school environment, those things were um, not only encouraged, but dealt with in a semi-professional therapeutic model. And so um, those secrets and that shame and that feeling different made me feel very uncomfortable in my skin as a kid. And so I was first exposed to alcohol around that same time. I had my first drink when I was yeah, probably about six. And uh, I, th- I think it was some kind of malt liquor. And we found a half-empty beer on the street or something and drank it, as I recall. And that was the first like, hmm, I like this. And then, uh, you know, getting eight, nine, ten years old... I still, I'm in school. I'm trying to be normal. I'm trying to fit in. I'm trying to do my work. I mean, I think there was a lot of factors that just made me very dysfunctional and very neurotic as a kid. I just immediately, you know, I just had all these emotional problems. And my first salvation and my first real spiritual connection, my first medicine was music. When I discovered rock and roll, oh my God. I mean, I'll never forget the first times I heard Jimi Hendrix, um, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead. I mean, these are the first sp- literally the smile on your face says a lot. spiritual experiences that I had, especially Hendrix. I mean, when I heard like Foxy Lady when I was whatever, probably seven years old or something, you know, of course it was on vinyl. We used to have these things called records. <laughs> They're big round black discs. Some people might be familiar with them, but it what was at my uncle's house and my, my uncle... He was kind of well off. He had a proper stereo, probably a really nice tube amp and really great speakers. And, and my mom used to clean his house uh, in exchange for childcare. And so she'd be at the other end of the house vacuuming and she would let me turn that stereo up as loud as I wanted, man. And I would turn on like Purple Haze or Foxy Lady or a song like that and just fucking see God, you know? And I felt relief. It, would, it like took me away to a place other than that feeling of shame and fear and disconnection and loneliness that I had felt. And it was, of course, at the time, I didn't contextualize it. I was just like, wow, this feels good, whatever this is. Yeah, music does that. Yeah, and then I, you know, and then I got a Walkman, you know, which is like the, the early iPod, a little cassette player with headphones, and I would get Black Sabbath. That was like my, my favorite band when I was a kid, was Black Sabbath, and I would listen to that. And and it would just take me away. And that was my first sort of relief and medicine. But one thing that was a double-edged sword about the music is as I started to get older and understand the, the social context and read about these bands and study the back of the albums and all that, I very quickly became aware that there was a lot of drugs involved in the music that I was in. And the environment in which I grew up for the most part was in Northern California and Sonoma County. And in, in that part of the world at that time, you had a lot of hippies that were in exile from Haight-Ashbury that had sort of gone bankrupt in a sense culturally at the end of the 60s. And a lot of them moved up north and just started growing weed and having kids. And so there was a lot of drugs and there were a lot of hell's angels around. And it was just a very like where I lived, a lot of bikers and hippies, and there was a lot of drugs. So I was very aware of drug culture 
there was drugs around me all the time in my family. Everyone used drugs. Everyone's parents used drugs. Everyone grow weed. There was just Coke everywhere, hashish everywhere. And then it was all infused in this music and this rock and roll. So I uh, quickly wasn't getting enough relief with music. And so I knew that these bands sang about drugs. I mean, I knew Snowblind by Black Sabbath was about Coke. So Coke must be great. So I started stealing Coke from people's parents, like a lot of it, you know, it would come right off the boats in Bodega Bay and end up in, you know, my mom's boyfriend's <laughs> duffel bag or whatever, you know, and there's a lot of guns around and all that. So my relief in wow. music and drugs became sort of interwoven and they were one thing. It's like rock and roll and drugs. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of sex happening yet. You know, I wish there were, but even then, I mean, I was like watching pornography in 1978 when I was eight years old. So actually it was kind of sex, drug and drugs and rock and roll. Um, I just wanted relief, you know what I mean? And, um, and I just needed my medicine and, and, and thank God for that. You know, I'm still not someone who's like against drugs. I mean, I just read something that Trump is likely, he said he's likely to approve the, you know, the federal position of hands off and letting the states do what they want with marijuana laws. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. I love marijuana. I just can't smoke it because I'm, I'm allergic. You know, I, I break out in track marks <laughs> or handcuffs. Bad things happen when I touch drugs, so I don't do it, but I still have a reverence and a respect. And I think all drugs kind of have their place. It's just, it's dangerous business for someone like me that's hardwired toward addiction. And so I immediately became addicted to drugs as a kid, as a form of relief. But I'm really actually, even though my life was ultimately destroyed by my drug addiction, plural, it was my savior, that and music, you know? And uh, I don't know if I would have survived my childhood if I didn't have access to weed. I mean, smoking weed was everything. That's how I dealt with school. That's how I dealt with being ignored by my parents or yelled at by my parents or just being abandoned by them in a sense for their lack of ability to raise me in a way that was functional and healthy. And I mean, smoking weed was just, oh God, man. I mean, I just, I'm yeah. so grateful that that was available, but I get totally caught up in, in it. You know, it's yeah. like, I could go on and on, but eventually what happened yeah. and what happens, Matt? Fro I can relate by the way, with the weed thing, because yeah. when I was, <laughs> when I was in eighth grade, which is pretty early, that's when yeah. my friends and I actually started experimenting a little bit with it. It just was kind of like the, the thing the cool kids were doing right now. Eighth grade, keep in mind for anyone listening for me was about five or six years ago. So it wasn't all that long ago, but um, it was, you know, we're 13 years old. So that was early compared to what most people I know were, you know, when they were starting That's that kind so of stuff. so crazy, dude. Wow. But we were using it and honestly, it was the shit. Like we had so much fun all the time. Um, it was just awesome. But the problem was that I didn't realize that, you know, there's, there's side effects, that kind of stuff, sort of. Um, the biggest thing was that I was kind of putting a lot of things to the side, like issues I was feeling. And I'll go deeper. I, I probably already went deeper on this in the previous episode where I explained all of my, um, my personal story. But um, I think it was when I actually reached high school and my dad had suggested that I go to a private Catholic school in Philadelphia because he thought it would give me more of a challenge. And then I didn't know this when I signed up for it. And I wouldn't have signed up if, if I had known this, but they did hair drug tests for weed. So they would actually like t take kids' <laughs> hair out, like a little piece of your hair to, to drug test. And it happened to a lot of kids I knew. So it was, they were doing it and it kept kids from smoking weed because otherwise you'd have to deal with all this counseling and stuff. 
and your parents would, you know, be told and and so on. Um, but I stopped smoking after approximately a uh, half a year of using it. And then I began my health journey because I could no longer mask the issues I was dealing with. And so I had to dig deeper. Now, it was easier for me in the internet age to obviously look deeper than it probably would have been for you to the the several factors that were affecting your life that made weed so useful. And, and this morning, interestingly, I was listening to um, some interview or some information regarding the endocannabinoid system in our body, its relation to mitochondrial function um, and the relation to health and how things like sunlight can act, actually naturally augment that system. So now I find if I actually were to smoke weed, um, I get short-circuited because I already have such high function in those systems where it's just like adding too much electricity to a circuit. I just oh, short out and I can't even... It really isn't enjoyable at all, no matter how little I use. Um, that's so interesting. it's just an interesting oh, side note cool. regarding Yeah, yeah, weed. that's cool. Well, I, you know, Matt, I think... Yeah, that's now that totally got me thinking on another tangent, but I do want to kind of wrap up the the story because yeah. while I'm, you know, in celebration of of that saving me, ultimately, I think when when one is using, or at least in my case, when I was using that at, literally as a crutch to live and couldn't be functional at all in the world unless I was um, under that anesthesia, which is really what it was. I couldn't find any connection to humanity or to the earth or to society, culture, work, creativity. I mean, I had to be high or I just would be going crazy. For a guy like me who has the inherent propensity toward addiction, I mean, I swear, I'm just, I'm so compulsive and addictive and obsessive still. I mean, now I point it in positive directions most of the time. I'm addicted to biohacking and health and meditation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we just meditated. I'm like, dude, it's 6.30. This is my meditation time. I don't care if we're going to record. Like, I have to meditate. It's my mm-hmm. thing. So I do positive things now habitually. But what happened for me, Matt, and what happens, I think, for a lot of people in recovery like myself, having you know, met hundreds of them over the past 21 years on this journey is that some of us have a weird gene where when you flip that switch and you get high, it doesn't even matter what thing you're getting high on, you're going to end up kind of on everything and you lose control over your faculties in a sense. So like if you and I smoke some weed right now, I might be fine today, but what would likely happen is I would start doing it increasingly more often Even if I don't really like it, at least it feels different than the way that I feel. And then I'm not going to be able to control that. Then I start having a few beers. Then when I'm kind of drunk and stoned, then someone's got some Coke. Then I'm like, I could do a little Coke. I'll just do a couple lines and I'll go home. But I don't go home. I do one line. Then I want to go get another bag. And then that gets boring. So now I want to smoke crack. And then I start smoking crack. And that gets super sketchy. So now I want to do some opiates. So maybe you have a couple pills. I do a couple of Vicodin or some, well, we didn't have oxys, but I hear they're pretty good. But I do something like that. And I'm like, ah, my stomach hurts. I might as well just go get some heroin. And so ensues the cycle of addiction where I'm now strung out wow. on five different drugs, you know, and having gone through the cycle of that nightmare a number of times between age 19 and 26, that's when I finally held up the white flag of surrender and was just like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> like this cannot, this literally I'm going to die. I can't handle this. And I'm very fortunate to arrive at that place, as you said, uh, because most people, and this is statistically true, I don't know the exact numbers, but based on my research, and I've done a considerable amount of that, most of us that reach that point don't survive. 
This is the people that are filling up the prisons. This is the homeless population. Uh, these are the people that are in the ground, gone, because they're unable to find help. And I was fortunate enough to start doing drugs at such a young age, eight, nine, 10 years old, become addicted to, I wasn't just smoking weed. I mean, when I was, by the time I was 13, I was doing crystal meth, coke, drinking, all that. Yeah. And breaking into houses, getting arrested, like bad shit. Guns, like I said. I mean, Mm -hmm. just weird, weird stuff for a little kid like that to be getting into. Um, So because I was able to get that all kind of out of the way and be in such a destitute place by 26, I was really fortunate to be able to surrender the idea that I could somehow control and enjoy that someday. At 26, I just knew, okay, you know what? I can't even smoke weed. I can't have one beer. I can't touch this. I have to be textbook sober. And once I got to that point and really surrendered and started to pursue a more oh, a more real spiritual experience and not a facsimile of accessing spirit and connection through altering my chemistry, but an actual spiritual experience where I was able to find glimpses of a connection to God and connection to other people in a, in a very heartfelt, unconditionally loving, compassionate way, which is true amongst many recovering addicts. We understand each other and care about each other in a way because we're almost, and I don't want to compare us to veterans and belittle what it's like to be a veteran because I haven't had the experience, but we've had our own internal war, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe two cancer survivors can sit across from each other and talk about that in a more in a deeper context than one cancer survivor and someone who's read about it. You see what I mean? So I started to access God through community and connection and in my recovery, you know, and um, in a sense have replaced that inner yearning for God with that experience rather than uh, a simulation of it, which is what drugs served the purpose for, for me, you know? So it's, it's really fun to be on the other side of that and go, wow, what a rich experience of life I was able to have by 26 and even by now, by 47, of being able to sort of get through many dark nights of the soul on the journey and just keep hitting those deeper and deeper levels of surrender that my own resources and my own will and my own ideas about life are valid yet limited you know and the more that i can align myself with my true purpose and align myself with service of others and and get out of selfishness and out of the egoic dominance that i lived in my whole life the more i can like hang out with you and malibu and my dog and have a beautiful day today where i'm not tripping out i'm really present i'm very much in the moment i'm not thinking about the bill that i haven't paid or you know some imaginary phantom anxiety or depression or sadness about something that's not valid. I mean, I'm actually able to be, I feel more high now than I ever have in my life. And that's the story of my recovery from addiction, which is, which is an ongoing process. But, but the light wouldn't be possible in my case, had I not gone to that depth of darkness. Yeah. You know, because now I just, I have a degree of empathy, a degree of, compassion for others and for my own journey and for my parents and even the people um, at whose hands I suffered uh, as a kid. I mean, I just, the depth of forgiveness that I'm able to experience is, oh, it's so fulfilling. You know, my heart feels so full uh, for all of the 
contrast from the dark to the light. The whole experience is actually really, um, really amazing to have experience and continue to experience. And thankfully, more of my time now is spent in the light. <laughs> Having days like we've had today, mm-hmm. you know, the periods of darkness is like a couple hours, maybe a couple days. There's a death, there's an illness, there's a breakup. And then it's like, oh shit, I've got to face another a level of awakening, a deepening of my, of my spiritual practice. But by and large, most of the time, I'm pretty carefree. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. This episode of the Lifestyles Podcast is brought to you by my friends over at Juve. So for the past year or so, I've been doing something called photobiomodulation. That's a super geeky term for using red light therapy. And Juve make a device that is hanging right here next to me in my podcast studio that I use just about every damn day. In fact, most days I use it twice a day. So why would you want to use red light therapy? Well, just like a whole food can be broken down into different vitamins and minerals, sunlight can also be broken down into different colors. And just like the nutrients in whole food, each color and sunlight has its own effect on our bodies. So once absorbed into your body, light energy is converted into cellular energy, which kicks off a series of metabolic events like the formation of new capillaries, elevated production of collagen, and the release of ATP. And red light therapy has even been approved by the FDA and its effectiveness has been studied throughout the world. So here's why I use the Juve red light therapy device on the reg. Repairs sun damage, which I get a lot of, reduces wrinkles, which I'm getting a few of, enhances muscle recovery and peak performance. When I work out, I have that issue. Heals acne and other blemishes, fades scars and stretch marks, speeds wound healing, reduces joint inflammation, and my favorite benefit of the Juve, increases testosterone production. So if you're interested in checking out some of those benefits for yourself, you can go over to juve.com forward slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash Luke. Here's the catch. If you use the code Luke at checkout, you will receive a special free gift. So go to juve.com forward slash Luke, use the code Luke and get hooked up with some Juve red light therapy. And now back to the interview. I think that although I haven't gone through anything of that magnitude, I'd say, um, I, like many others, have had my own experience with some really, really difficult struggles. And sometimes I almost feel um, when I speak of my own struggles as if, oh, they probably, you know, they weren't that bad way, you know, that kind of self-belittling almost like um, invalidating subconsciously my own experiences (laughs) for whatever reason I do that. Um, You know, I can just hear some voices of some negative people in my life saying, oh, you know, you don't, you don't know what it's like to go through real struggles. You know, that's, that's what you've gone through isn't much. But, but to be honest, I went through a lot of really difficult experiences with health when I was 13, 14, and I couldn't figure it out. And I mentioned this in our I episode. I remember that. I yeah. really couldn't figure it out. And I was getting really, really depressed and almost even suicidal or at least questioning, you know, like, why am I alive? What's the point? I, I just hate this. This is terrible. It's a struggle. I felt like I was never going to get out of this struggle just to start feeling good again. Um, you know, thankfully I wasn't, you know, using heroin or all kinds of something, something like that, but, um, it was difficult. So I, I do think there's really something to be said for this idea that, you know, pain is the greatest teacher and that we can only really learn from 
real experience with pain. I mean, yes, there's many other ways to learn and ideally we wouldn't have to go through that stuff. But when you've really experienced something to realize over and over and over and you trick yourself into thinking that you can get away with it again or whatever it may be, ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't work out. So uh, I think it's very interesting that you bring that up. And I think a lot of people who are in really difficult places and feel like they're struggling should definitely keep in mind that sometimes pain is the greatest teacher. Um, there's a book I read called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. It's a Dude, really people good one. always recommend that book to me and I've yet oh, to read it. I got to get it. I got to get it. Yeah, it's really good, but it talks about that. It says, there are no mistakes on the road to self-mastery. Um, only, or I should say, there are no mistakes, only lessons and teachers on the road to self-mastery. That's Absolutely. really how it goes. So as you were in your darkest, deepest states, you mentioned that that correlated quite a lot with poor health. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Because I want to ask you next, how did you get out of that? Because that's really the key question for a lot of people who are in issues, maybe not quite as severe, but still going through struggles. Um, Like what were the physical symptoms? You know, because you're in health now, I'm in health. That's where we both come from largely. So, you know, how was that whether it was directly a result of the drugs you were on or the environment, the lifestyle you were living that also led to you taking the drugs or a combination of both. You mentioned you were really underweight. What other stuff did you have going on? Yeah, I I know how to really put a bow on that, I think, because that's been a long journey too. Before I answer that though, I just want to touch on one thing that you were mentioning about each of our own individual struggles and pain points and periods of our life in which we suffer. And there's something really interesting about suffering that I've discovered is that it's very relative. And there's always this quote that comes to mind for some reason. And I don't know if this is what he meant, but this is this is my interpretation of it. And it's by Bob Marley. And I got to figure out what song, I got to Google like what song this is from, but he says, every man's burden is the heaviest. And I always love the way that that was phrased because it's like what you went through, you know, as a kid in high school and with the health challenges that you had, in a sense, were as painful as some of the things that I went through of, you know, getting arrested and getting into crime and drug addiction and all this kind of stuff as a teen. It's like, who can say that my pain, because maybe it would have been more sensational or more newsworthy was a deeper felt pain subjectively in my own experience than yours was to you. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, very interesting. So it's like, you know, there's this thing that some some of us have where we feel as if our pain isn't relevant and that it can't be expressed or shared or even grieved because, well, those people over there have it worse, so I shouldn't be complaining. And I would just, I, I like to just dispel that because I think, no matter what your trauma is, it's still experienced as trauma. And in my years of being sober, I've met a lot of people that, you know, if you put, you know, our levels of trauma in a story and you had, did a blind study and had people read it, they would say, oh, Luke, those people's trauma is definitely worse than yours, et cetera, right? So they were, you know, not only sexually abused, but someone beat the shit out of them every day until they were 10 or whatever. So I, I didn't, wasn't subjective to a lot of physical violence per se. But I've met people that are just as screwed up and neurotic and have as many mental disorders, if not more than me. And their trauma was just being the golden child of the family and having these insane expectations put upon them 
by their elders. Or maybe they were the middle child and they were ignored and that's their trauma and they're just as screwed up and went through just as much pain as the first kid who had the expectations and was maybe, you know, got their ass beat all the time. So it's just really interesting to observe the human reaction to pain and trauma. And so I always want to encourage people um, that if yours isn't, doesn't sound that bad on paper, that you probably still experienced it in a way that makes it valid and um, necessitates the processing of that with, with reverence, you know, to honor your own struggle and your own pain, even if in comparison to others, it pales. So I just wanted to add yeah. that caveat. Yeah. And I'll throw in something that comes to mind. Um, I was recently in the sauna um, with some really interesting people chatting. And there was this talk of how it's so common for people to really either be very cocky or even more so in our society today for people to get very hard on themselves and kind of take on like a victim complex where people say like, oh, you know, I'm just not good enough, you know, and really, you, you know where I'm coming from, where people yeah. just make <laughs> themselves feel like they're, they're not valuable and they're not yeah. worth anything, right? And that's a very common thing, I think, in our society today. And the quote that they took that this person mentioned, it was kind of like a, uh, a, a rephrased quote from the Bible and it was basically that God sees every hair on every head equally. So essentially, another way of putting it might be that in, every, in God's eyes or in the eyes of the universe, whichever you may prefer, listener, God sees everyone equally, ultimately. And no one is more and no one is lesser, ultimately. Even the poor person on the street who's homeless is not lesser than the rest of us in God's eyes. So I've, I've actually had that, um, I've had that reverberating through my head and it's been very useful for me recently because I, as I've enjoyed so much success with my health recently, with podcasts, with really cool opportunities out here, sometimes I get, you know, I naturally get super confident. I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. I'm doing really well, but I'm trying to balance it with not getting overconfident or, or when confidence turns into cockiness for myself, you know, trying to find that line. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, this is a really, really good thing to keep in mind because yes, you know, I might be confident and happy with what I'm doing, but in the eyes of God, I'm not necessarily any better than anyone else, you know, better subjective anyway, but I'm also not necessarily worse, you know? So it's, it just felt like yeah. a really interesting way to look at stuff. So we're not, we're not better than others. We're not worse. We just are what we are and we can be happy for it. But it's, it's definitely when we get into, you know, comparing with others that we, you know, will ultimately see probably more struggles for ourselves, I think. Um, yeah, I, that's the, that's the, and I haven't forgotten about your question about the health. I totally want to go there, but this is, totally. this is great too. To me, what you're describing is the true essence of the spiritual principle of humility. And humility has a lot of definitions and to try to, <laughs> to express that I have them nailed would be a complete lack of humility on my part. It's a, it's a funny joke. I always say like, I'm the most humble guy in the room, you know? Um, but humility is is an to me an accurate assessment of my weaknesses and shortcomings and my strengths and talents it's it's not see it's false humility to be like oh i'm not that special i'm just a regular guy no each one of us is is spectacularly unique and gifted by whatever it is that created us created us so it's actually to me a most disrespectful of creation to diminish my own value as a soul, as a spirit, as a human, and play down my uh, majesty, right? 
But in ego, we're always thrown to one side of that extreme to where I'm in a position of comparison and I'm walking into a room or any situation from that more animal base level of ego where I'm sensing whether I'm inferior or superior. So in ego identification, I've got to seek a position to know where I stand. It's like oh, when yeah. you watch, I was watching my dog last night in the room with another dog and my dog's a female, small, 10 pounds, two years old. This other male dog comes in. He's five years old. He's probably 15 pounds. And my female dog starts mounting that dog when it walks in. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's like watching the jock at the high school party try to dominate the skinny rocker kid or whatever, you know, any social situation in which people are still predominantly ego identified. And it's always seeking that position of higher or lower. But as we become more higher self-conscious, more God-conscious, more based in actual reality, there is no higher or lower. There's just different. And inherent to that is that true sense of being right-sized, of being humble, where I can admit my faults, I can admit the things that I need to work on, but I can also take a humble ownership in the areas in which I'm badass. So I I I love to look at both sides of that because when people talk about you know, oh, that guy's an egomaniac. Most of us, I think, still view that as someone who's narcissistic and arrogant and has that sense of superiority and is looking down their nose on people. But I think someone who is very shame-based and hides their their uh, hides their true self and someone who's very um, subservient and people-pleasing, to me, that's an equal measure of someone who's very ego-identified. And I've been on both sides of that spectrum, as have most of us. Yeah. Okay. So, now, do you did you say that your <laughs> female dog mounted the male dog? Yeah, it was weird. Really? Yeah. yeah see, I, did, I yeah. was just curious yeah, about that. Yeah, I was because I've only had her for two weeks, and I've never had a dog. I just so didn't I'm think like, that was a thing a female would ever do. Dude, <laughs> totally weird. Yeah, I was like, she's like a femdom uh, dog. Interesting. She's getting, yeah, <laughs> she's she's getting down. Um, yeah, but it was just a dominance thing, and it's it's just the animal thing, and we're part animal too. That's why I love observing animals. Animals. I like watching the like animal planet shows and things like that, and just watching uh, herd mentality, pack mentality, um, tribalism, all of these kind of things, because it gives you great insight into the hidden, well, not so hidden motives of humanity. And mm-hmm. it shows you how when we ignore our angelic self and live on that base level, this is where you have one-on-one crime. This is where you have national crime. You have international crime. You have wars. You have conflict. When human beings don't know themselves as anything other than that animal base, instinctively driven nature. So it's a matter of, you know, acknowledging that base nature, the ego, the body, the needs of the body, the, the want for sex, the want for control, the want for dominance, the want for more They're food than I wants. really need. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, you know, see, that's the error of a lot of religion, I think, is, is labeling those as sin and demonizing those drives rather than keeping those drives within equal measure and balance. I mean, sex is great if it's used right. It's a very powerful drive. Definitely. I'm, right now, I'm in the middle of a 13-month celibacy run, and I'm transmuting all of that energy that I've spent much of my life wasting into creativity and into productivity and into just going inside and really getting to know and learn about myself just for an experiment. (laughs) And so that I become more clear on what I'm able to contribute to a relationship and what I want from a relationship. So I stepped back. So it's so interesting to watch that drive, for example, and observe that without 
being at the mercy of any of those impulses temporarily. I mean, obviously I'm not going to keep this going forever, but Mm -hmm. it's really fun to step back and go, oh, that's interesting. You know, I see the animal still wanting to do its thing. And it's not like I'm fighting that. I just observe it and I just approach, uh, maybe I meet a really attractive lady, right? And it's like, of course, the idea in my mind is still like, ooh, yeah, wow, how can I make this happen? Yeah. But I'm not even giving energy into the flirting and the intrigue and like the whole game, the mating ritual. I've actually opted out of not only the mating, but the rituals of mating, which is so interesting to do for me for the first time at this stage of my life, because it's given me much more separation from that and consciousness about that. So that when I decide to re-engage in that, I'll probably do that in a much more conscious and, um, healthy way, I think for me. But anyway. I think that's a great idea. And so but back let, to the, yeah, the health the side thing, of things, yeah. I, I want to preface with a little bit of just okay. sharing that I think I notice it's common and I obviously kind of have a, a loaded agenda when I ask this question because what I'm really trying to show is that I have this theory and this belief that people who live, actually I know for a fact that people, because I was one of them, people who live in an indoor um, artificial light at night, completely circadian destroyed lifestyle where there's a lot of late nights and uh, sleeping in really late and barely being out in any natural sunlight ever, living in artificial lighting. People are really skinny. Either people are overweight, but I'm seeing that there's very, very few people out there today who have a healthy, natural weight where they have a nice shape to them. You know what I mean? It's either people are overweight or they're pretty skinny, pale, and underweight in general. Not to say that that's everyone, but that was for sure me on the skinny pale side. And so really what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, do you think that your unhealthy lifestyle had to do with your underweightness and what other symptoms went along with that, that I might not be aware of because I haven't gone through those experiences, but that someone listening to this might say, Hmm, that kind of sounds like me. Well, thank you. Thank you for indulging me on that side tangent. And I'd also like to just note for our listeners that right now we're getting this great diffused, I'm getting it on my (laughs) side, this great diffused light out here in Malibu. Now, half our UV is getting cut out by the glass window. So not ideal, but still feels nice. But yeah, my health journey is, is I think also uh, very interesting, Matt, because when I was a kid, you know, like I said, I had the cowboy dad who I don't want to paint as some ignorant redneck or something. I mean, he's a very bright guy, very conscious guy, but he grew up hunting and fishing and, you know, living on the elk he killed every year. I mean, he's like living off the land kind of guy, an entrepreneur, renaissance man, uh, amazing guy. But he was into natural food and health food and vitamins and stuff back in the 70s. And my mom, born and raised in Berkeley, lived her whole life in Northern California. We only shopped at the health food store. She listened to Marvin Gaye and lit incense. And like, you know, we had a, a vibey house. I mean, you know, these were all dysfunctional in their own way. But in terms of what I was eating, a lot of the time it was fairly healthy. And I would have to sneak over to my friend's house to eat Captain Crunch and Twinkies and shit like that. We used to make these... uh I later dubbed these white trash donuts, but I had no Wonder Bread or like white sugar in any of my parents' homes. You know, we just, just, you just didn't buy that. You know, back then health food was like whole wheat bread though. You know what I mean? It was like still swaggy food looking back, but they did their best. You know, you got granola out of the bulk bin at the health food store and that was like health food. But the other kids are eating literal like GMO Captain Crunch berries with corn syrup or whatever. But we used to make these white trash donuts and it was a piece of Wonder Bread You put a tablespoon of margarine on the Wonder Bread, pour like a tablespoon of white sugar and then roll it up into a doughy ball, throw it in the microwave. (laughs) And that's the kind of shit I would eat at my friend's house. Holy shit. So 
while at home, my parents did their best to, to teach me about health food. And when I was from five years old, my mom was giving me huge handfuls of vitamins. So I started taking vitamins when I was five. And this is 1975. This wasn't common like it is now. Uh, I mean, you had to go to a special store to get vitamins. They're, they weren't at like Safeway or Ralph's or something like that. So um, I'll, you know, I'll fast forward the story. Um, even as I was living such a toxic and destructive lifestyle, I mean, I won't even get into like blue light at night and later on EMF exposure and playing music and studios where you're just surrounded by these electrical fields and spending all the time at night. But how I ended up so sick and weak, frail, thin physically was really just, Matt, because I did not eat food. I just drank booze and smoked crack and heroin. And I just spent very little energy on um, eating actual food, whether it be junk food or health food. However, funny part of my story is from around 1990 to 97, as I guess, oh, I always call it six years. I guess it was really more seven years living in the den of iniquity of Hollywood at that time. While I was out all night smoking crack on the streets of Hollywood, the next morning I would get up and go get like a quadruple wheatgrass with bitter melon juice and and raw garlic. I remember garlic you said this and, in New York. Yeah, and it really I struck mean, me. You were the you said you were the the junkie who would go and eat the green smoothies, and you'd tell your friends. You know, they'd say, you know, you're a junkie. Why do you even bother? And you say, well, if I'm going to do all this stuff, I might as well eat. Well. You remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And back then you had like these juice bars and smoothie bars in Hollywood and a health smoothie would be, bee pollen was the big superfood. So you'd get like a smoothie and it was probably uh, like soy milk, bee pollen, some bananas and some kind of whey protein powder or something. And that, yeah. And that was, I know, (laughs) but at the time, I mean, for someone who's doing drugs all night, like if I did eat and when I did eat most of the time, it was like in hangover recovery mode after I partied until nine in the morning or something, then I would go down to the health food store. The intention is very important. Yeah. And I somehow just knew intuitively that I would probably die if I wasn't doing those interventions. And also at the same time, I was kind of dabbling in spirituality and reading a couple of spiritual books and things like that, even though I was still terribly addicted. So the reason if you that can I, name one, that uh, I am that you the most. a book. Yeah, yeah. Of the, spiritual uh, the book books. that lit me up was called is called I am that, and it's a book by Nissa Gardada. Nissa, <laughs> it's really hard to pronounce. Nissa Gardada Maharaj, who's an Indian saint. I am that, and. Uh, I, I didn't know what the book was talking about. It was like, it was in English, but it was literally like reading a different language. But there was something on the back of the book that talked about, um, I don't want to get into it, but essentially the that book is about non-dualism and it's about the separation between spirit and mind and feelings, which is now the basis of my life. It's about who's the one watching your thoughts, right? So if you, if you meditate and you're like, wow, I, I saw all these thoughts going by, I can't stop thinking. Who's the one who's aware of those thoughts that you're thinking? Feel me? And that clicked. I was like, whoa, dude, that's heavy. I mean, at the time I was taking a lot of acid, going to a lot of dead shows, a lot of Jair Garcia shows you know, around the same time. So I was getting a little bit metaphysical in my psychedelic experiments, although they were mostly based on partying and taking a lot of nitrous hits in the parking lot. But I did have a few awakening moments, one in particular on a shitload of mushrooms. What I used to do for work was sell drugs. And one of the drugs I sold was mushrooms. And one night I had this profoundly spiritual experience on mushrooms. And that experience was, dude, you're a drug addict. 
you're going to die. You're wasting your life. You're a total fucking loser. You need to get sober. And that's what led me to getting sober. Wow. But to digress, um, let's go back to the food piece. So by the time I got sober, I'm 35 pounds. I mean, I haven't eaten real food in a long time. Little superfoods here and there. I mean, I'm doing my best. But I mean, honestly, I was knocking on death's door for sure. And I realized that I was really toxic. So I started getting into detoxing and taking detox herbs. And the first things that I did, because this is the late 90s and in the health scene, what was really popular was colon health. And so I was doing a bunch of uh, bentonite clay and charcoal. And then you'd take all these powerful herbs to evacuate. And I knew that I needed to get those poisons out of my body as quickly as possible. I was doing infrared saunas, the colonics, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, all of this stuff like in the, in the uh, mid to late 90s. And then what I did, because at the time I didn't know better, is I became a vegetarian because I started to meditate and, you know, studying Eastern philosophy and doing yoga. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to kill animals. That's very barbaric. I love animals. Why would I kill an animal when I can eat a soybean and some bunch of corn and wheat, you know? <laughs> so I started eating this highly inflammatory diet of, you know, grains. I was eating rice. I was eating, you know, tempeh, um, all of these fake meats. I'd go to the vegan restaurants and thinking I was being healthy, eating like just soy bombs, these estrogen explosions, you know? And um, so even after I became Mr. Health guy, I was still very sick and had a lot of digestion and energy problems for a long time. Unbeknownst to me, I was still eating, albeit a vegetarian diet, I was still eating a really inflammatory and for the most part, toxic diet as a vegetarian because I was unaware that you could get healthy animal products. I didn't know anything other than factory farms. I started to learn about the farming, the factory farm processes and how the animals are inhumanely slaughtered and all the crap that they're fed, the hormones, the antibiotics and all that. And I didn't know you could go to the farmer's market and get really healthy grass-fed beef and grass-fed liver and you could eat clean fish like sardines and oysters and wild salmon and all of that. It was just like all the oceans are toxic, so you can't eat fish and it's mean to kill a fish anyway. You can't eat any animals because they're all raised on factory farms and terribly abused and they're just full of all this poison. And so I went vegetarian for 10 totally. years. And, uh, and that led to a, a myriad of health problems, which eventually led me to, I think really, how maybe six years ago or something, I, I, I got into Bulletproof Coffee when it first came out and I started, I didn't even know what ketosis was, but all of a sudden I'm not craving sugar and carbs. And I started to learn that you, you know, yeah, the reason I was so sick is I was so deficient in DHA. I was deficient in uh, B vitamins, so many minerals that I wasn't getting from this plant-based diet. And you had been sober for how many oh, years yeah. at this I point? Oh yeah, I mean, this is, you know, that was, I was you know, 15 years sober or something like that at that point. I'm 21 years now, coming up on 22. And so, so my journey from health was like, dabbling with it to try to stay alive as a drug addict, going vegetarian and eating mostly organic, doing all the cleansing, the herbalism, the early archaic you know, biohacking practices, uh, even cold showers. I started doing cold showers 20 years ago. You know, It's just as part of my practice. So now ice baths is like, yeah, hello, everyone. <laughs> Where you been? You yeah. know, of course. <laughs> Not to sound like a smart ass, but you know, these are things that I just realized early on really helped me to feel better. I knew nothing about mitochondria, but what I did discover many years ago, prior to Jack Cruz, prior to any of that, is that I learned about sun gazing from uh, India. And I learned wow. about grounding probably, oh man, I don't know, 
15 plus years ago, I think maybe from David Wolf and those guys, like the raw food sort of hippie vegan guys about the grounding, you know, the sun gazing. Um, I've been going to hot springs my whole life. When I was a little kid, my dad always took me to hot springs in Colorado, um, rolling around in the snow, jumping in freezing rivers, freezing lakes. So to me, the ultimate biohack as we sit here together, and I know you're on the same page, is, is sunlight, is cold exposure, is heat exposure through saunas, hot springs, sun, whatever it might be, really working with light. And so now I'm sort of full circle. I eat a very simple diet. I eat as many vegetables as I can, probably not enough. I eat healthy fats and I eat- Actually, out- the, it might be enough. I was in really? Vermont this weekend or <laughs> okay. last weekend with a guy named Dr. Boros, who okay. I'm sure we'll both have on our show. Who's Please the, tell me I don't have to eat vegetables because I don't You do not need I don't to eat like, that many vegetables. Like we vegetables. really don't. They're for, they're for animals and not for humans. You Are let you the serious? cows and the other animals eat the vegetables, you eat them oh, because it's so better funny. anyway. And a lot of people will be skeptical when they hear this, but we'll have Dr. Boros on the okay. show, the expert in deuterium. But basically, um, what he has shown through their research, and again, I'm not going to get too deep into the deuterium yeah. thing, but deuterium is just a, uh, a molecule that is like hydrogen, but it's a little different. But hydrogen is how we make energy for people who don't know that. So we use hydrogen and oxygen, hydrogen from food, oxygen from the air. We react the two in our mitochondria to create water. And then the, when uh, the water is made, there's a huge release of energy throughout several steps. And that's how we make ATP to power our reactions and keep us alive and everything. If those processes slow down, then we get diseases. If they stop, we die. But um, so deuterium is like a big old golf ball going to a, an engine. It really doesn't work. It breaks the engines. If Think about if you put buckyballs into your gas tank and they got in your engine, well, it wouldn't work compared to jet fuel. That's what this deuterium stuff is. But interestingly, some animals are designed to eat high deuterium diets um, and their brain sizes kind of correlate to that in, in a lot of ways. But Certain animals like humans higher up on the food chain, dolphins, <laughs> that kind of thing, are designed to eat lower deuterium diets, primarily animal-based, animal and fat-based right. or, or seafood-based as well. Right. But it just happened. And you know, some people hearing this will not like to hear this, but it turns out that the foods lowest in deuterium are fats and you know, animal fats. That's um, interesting. So I'm thinking of a cow yeah. as being, you know, obviously an animal that on its natural diet would just eat greens, green yeah, grass, and they're pretty dumb. I mean, God yeah. bless, I love cows. You know, they're sweet animals, but they're not the brightest uh, bulb on the tree. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're eating tons of our this brain require stuff. Our brain requires a little bit of a different diet well, to thing be at the, its level. Here's the thing with the veggies though, bro. I'm not hung up on being alkaline. I'm not hung up even on the nutrients in, in vegetables because I eat, I do tablespoons of spirulina and stuff. Like I mean, if I'm eating green stuff, it's like algaes and, and things like that. So it's not, it's not that I'm think I'm lacking the nutrients per se, but it's more about the fiber. You know, if I just eat kind of fish and meat, I feel like what's moving the poop? Like, yeah. How's that you happening? Can, you can ask him about this on okay, your show. Yeah, It'll be, you'll, you'll like it. He didn't say no vegetables, although yeah. there are some people doing a pure carnivore diet. That's an interesting thing to look at. And maybe someone in that would be interesting to have on your show. But anyway, on that note, so would you say that the things that helped you the most were this sunlight, water, these things? Because I'm curious, throughout your whole recovery process as far as health and building up your health and your dopamine level um, naturally, uh, you know, to help, I guess, alleviate the struggles you're feeling internally and to really get to the state you're, you're at. In addition to your use of spirituality, what were the health interventions that had the biggest impact? Definitely getting in alignment with nature. 
doing the sun gazing, the cold, the ice baths, um, doing breath work. I've been doing Kundalini yoga for a number of years. And that involves, depending on the teacher and what they focus on, but can involve a lot of really intensive breath work. Uh, a lot of it's very similar to holotropic breathing or even Wim Hof method uh, breath work. It's all kind of the same stuff, just getting a lot of oxygen. So those are like the foundational things just that are basically free is just really getting in alignment with nature, focusing a lot on sleep, EMF mitigation, um, meaning that I'm, you know, my phone is always on airplane if it's on my body. I don't have a Wi-Fi router in my house turned on most of the time. I'm on Ethernet unless I need it for a guest or something like that. I don't sleep with the phone next to me. I try to just stay as far away from electronics as, as I can without being totally paranoid and a maniac. Um, I've experimented with some different devices that um, in a sense, neutralize the EMF fields in your house. One I'm working with right now is called a Blue Shield, which is a confusing name, but they're from New Zealand. They don't understand we have a big company called Blue Shield Insurance here. <laughs> but it's, there's some fascinating research about what's called scalar uh, technology. It's um, something that was really researched by Tesla, Nikola Tesla. And so I'm always looking for ways to do that. So those interventions have been huge. But I'm also a massive biohacker. So I do a ton of supplementation, nootropics, uh, superfoods, different things like that. Uh, I'm kind of the old drug addict in me is still very much obsessed with just stuff I can take to feel good. It's just things that don't typically have side effects. Um, and then also on the technology side, there's a number of things that have been really useful to me. The things I'm working with right now uh, or a device called an amp coil, which is a combination of biofeedback and PEMF. It's used to rid people of Lyme disease and autoimmune issues, although it has wide applications in terms of elevating your consciousness and relaxation and things like that. I've also worked with neurofeedback a lot at Peak Brain LA. I've also done something called 40 Years of Zen uh, with the Bulletproof Dave Asprey crew, intensive neurofeedback sessions where you're working on upregulating certain... Um, brain waves and down regulating others. I've used that to improve focus, sleep, all kinds of things like that. Is the sun setting? <laughs> you don't want to. <laughs> It'd be cool to check it out. Oh, yeah. So, see, one thing we do is we watch the sunset. So you don't want to miss your sun gaze. I do not want to miss the sun gaze as it's actually just heading over the horizon. But so, these are some of the things yeah. you've done. I'm also, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the sun too. Also, I'm, I'm a huge fan of molecular hydrogen. I use the gas producing tablets that you put in water. I also have an inhaler by a company called Vital Reaction. I use that every day. I'm really into uh, water. I drink exclusively whenever I can help it. True spring water from nature that I collect myself that is not processed in any way. If I can't get it myself for whatever reason, I get it from a company called Live Spring Water here in LA. And that's water that is totally untreated by nature. Uh, and so that's a huge part of my practice. And I also use a device called a Nano-V, which is um, a device that produces something called exclusion zone water in the form of a mist, which is really supportive of your mitochondria and reducing oxidative stress. So the biohacking techs that I use are, they're substantial, they're pretty expensive, and they're kind of medical grade interventions, things that someone who was very sick typically would get their hands on or go see a clinician or practitioner in order to use. But I'm of the mind that although I'm not sick and don't have any 
issues at present. I would like to live my lifestyle in a way that prevents those issues from ever happening to begin with. Absolutely. So I'm I'm kind of a you know pre-interventionalist rather than going, oh shit, I have Lyme, I have autoimmune, I have cancer, I have diabetes, heart disease, dementia. I just want to do everything I can to just stay healthy while I'm here. Of but course. Those, those things all cost a lot of money and time. And some of them, you know, not the ones I mentioned, but I do a lot of things that are a bit fringe and somewhat experimental. So I always recommend to people the first half of the recommendations, which is just the breath, the ice, the saunas, the sun, the hot springs, the grounding, the uh, blue light mitigation is massive, dude. Yeah, I, sp- you I wear mean, the raw night- optics. Yeah, I wear your raw that optics. For and, you. you know, this is this is not an obligatory shout out. I mean, this is just that's what I do. It's what I wear. <laughs> yeah. I, you made me some prescription glasses. Those are my driving glasses at night. Uh, so basically, what I do with lighting, and I think this is so crucial, and it sounds like. I think to some people, when you talk about mitigating blue light and EMF, non-native EMF, as they call it, it sounds like such a pain in the ass. Like, oh God, I have to change my whole lifestyle. It's too hard. Dude, it's so easy to just habituate yourself. It takes about 21 days to 90 days of habituating yourself so that what I do in my home. So right now, as you said, the sun's setting in here. If we were in my home right now, I'm aware that it's getting dark outside soon. And so it gets dark inside as well. So I have amber and red lights all over my house. I also have a Juve red light therapy device that I use a lot. That's another one of my favorite hacks. And when it gets dark outside, it gets dark inside. And if I leave my house, I have what used to be stupid ass looking blue blocker glasses on until I got yours, which are very stylish. And you know, I'm not that embarrassed to wear around town uh, mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Uh, but it's dark outside also at night. So I'm just following the laws of nature, drinking natural spring water, following the light cycles of nature, doing my best to avoid the EMFs, exposing my body to extreme hot and extreme cold, which would happen in nature. That's how we've evolved. Unless you lived on the equator, you'd be freezing at night and you'd probably be hot as hell a lot during the day, depending on, of course, on where you live. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, it's just, it's about the, the exposure to the elements and getting my physical meat suit as in tune to that as possible, because that's what's really supportive of the emotional work that I'm doing, uh, keeping my mentality right, having my neurotransmitters on point, my hormones on point, so that I can pursue my spiritual exploration and development with reckless abandon, abandon and not be so encumbered by the physical meat suit, lacking the yeah. energy to facilitate that pursuit. It's like the body to me is, it's just a game. It's like, it's novel and all of the physical practices and all the health shit is just a means to an end to get my spirit where it's meant to go and help me be of maximum service in the world without dying prematurely before my mission has been completed. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. A few years ago, I learned that being exposed to artificial blue light at night is really bad for you. It trashes your melatonin. When you lose your melatonin production, you lose your sleep. When you lose your sleep, you lose your health. So once I learned that, I started going online and buying really cheap, I mean like $7 blue blocker glasses that look like something you'd wear on a construction site. Uh, Much to the disappointment of my dates and friends at the time, I was kind of a pioneer in the blue blocking eyewear but unfortunately at that time there were no glasses that didn't make you look like a total jerk enter my friends over at rawoptics.com who've not only created glasses that block all those gnarly spectrums of blue and even green light 
but they've also done so with frames that don't embarrass you or your friends. So you can actually look halfway normal while going out at night wearing blue blocking glasses. So I'd love for you to check them out. They are awesome. I wear them all the time. In fact, right now as I record this, because I have to have my office lights on in the studio, I'm wearing them as I record this. How apropos. So go to rawoptics.com. That's spelled R-A optics. Use the code lifestylist and save yourself 10%. That's rawoptics.com. The code is lifestylist. And now back to the interview. So I want to change the tone a little bit because obviously you are the lifestylist. You're helping people to style a better life for them. But we haven't really talked much about your your background as a stylist. And I'd you know, really like to ask just a, a few brief questions about that. For example, how did you get into style? And even more importantly to me, or maybe even to the listeners, uh, not that it's not important how you got in this style, by the way, obviously it is, but everyone wants to look good, right? So how can, what do you recommend to people when you talk with them about style? Because everyone wants to look good, seriously. I just said it, but I'll say it again. Well, um, you could say, you know, no one wants to look like shit. <laughs> no one wants to <laughs> some, look like shit. Some people are more or less interested in their fashion choices, but we can all agree everyone you know, on some level wants to yeah. wants to represent and present themselves yeah. in a way and, that's that's if not accepted by others, maybe even appreciated. Well, by yeah. I mean, I have some friends who, you know, will wear a pair of denim overalls with one strap off and the pant, you know, shirt tucked in and just looks fantastic. It's kind of like an old vintage look, but obviously they're going for something, even if they yeah. say they're not going for anything at all. They are. So in general, if someone, like if I were to ask you, you know, how do, how do you recommend I dress or, or think about dressing myself to, you know, optimize my fashion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, there's two parts to the question. You know, first part is how did I end up in that thing? And I can keep that brief. And, you know, it's an interesting story because I, I never... Well, don't, don't hesitate on it. Don't I never, Well, I never set out to, uh, oh, I'm going to be a fashion stylist. Like I wasn't reading Vogue magazines when I was a kid. I was into music, dude. But see, music was intrinsically related to fashion and all of my favorite bands look cool as shit. I mean, I'm at, Stones are like my all-time favorite. Keith Richards, all-time favorite musician for all history. You know, just, I mean, I have a lot of them. If I had to pick one guy and, you know, in terms of songwriting and things like that and, and also just guitar style. And if, you know, you gave me my Desert Island picks, Exile and Main Street would probably be number one. So Keith Richards is cool, right? But it's not only because of Keith Richards' music, it's because Keith Richards looks dope as hell and always has and still does. You know what I mean? So when I was a kid and I started getting into music, I mean, what if Jimi Hendrix was just a total nerd and looked like your dad and just, you know, wore like dad jeans and a turtleneck? Like Jimi Hendrix would have been cool, would have been a great performer perhaps, but he wouldn't have been Jimi Hendrix unless he looked like he did. So when I was a kid, I was into my clothes and into fashion as it related to rock and roll and into music. And as I started playing in bands in the early 90s, I was just, I don't know, I was always the guy that was into the way I looked and into clothes and stuff. So I would end up being by default sort of the stylist in the bands I was in. You know, someone would put something on for one of our little photo shoots and be like, Luke, is this cool? And then I was the one that was sort of approved the wardrobe, right? And I didn't even know what a stylist was. So that was how I kind of approached it was that I just thought bands that looked cool were way better. I was into the theatrics of the performance. And when I was a kid, I would go to the record store and flip through the records and I would just 
I'd buy a record if the band looked cool. Like I remember I ordered um, Guns N' Roses. What was their uh, Live Like a Suicide? That was their first EP that came out before um, Appetite for Destruction, their big like long form album that really put them on the map. And I ordered that out of some catalog just because they kind of looked like Aerosmith and Hanoi Rocks. And I was like, those guys look dope. I know I'm going to like their music. I ordered that EP and of course I loved it. So music and fashion were one thing to me. They were inseparable. But how I got into it was really weird and fortuitous in a sense because I had gotten sober and uh, my very first girlfriend when I moved to LA in 89 was a woman named Kikai Mingus. And her dad, incidentally, was a famous jazz musician named Charles Mingus. And so she taught me a lot about culture and fashion and music. And she was raised in Manhattan and taught me all about blues and jazz and just things that I, you know, the roots of the music that I was into as a teen and whatnot. And she, uh, you know, we didn't last long because I was a train wreck of a 19 year old or whatever when we met, but we stayed in touch. And when, when I got sober, I reached out to her and was just like, Hey, I'm, you know, I've been really screwed up. She said, I know well, we got the memo. You're, you're a disaster. What can I do for you? And I didn't have anywhere to live. I was homeless. And so she was going on tour with Tina Turner and I um, agreed to house it for her and watch her dog. And I'm like three months sober, or six months sober, just to completely out of my mind. But what happened was I was house sitting for her while she was on tour. And then somewhere along the line, she booked Aerosmith as a client. And I grew up on Aerosmith and they're in one of my top favorite bands. And it so happened that they were sober at this particular time. This is the late nineties and they were publicly sober. They were like the first band to come out and be like, Hey, we all went to rehab. We're sober now. we got a new album. And they were huge at that time. This was a don't want to miss the thing was like the big single they had out with the movie Armageddon. So Kikai comes back from tour and is like, hey, uh, I booked Aerosmith. I have no assistant. Will you help me? And I had already been doing errands for her and stuff like that. So how I really got into fashion was through music and knowing someone who gave me a break. That was my first big break in the industry. And so uh, I went from a kid that was just a music fan to now assisting her working with Aerosmith. And you know, I, I'll never forget one day, um, you know, I, I was so shy and insecure and still just so damaged. I didn't even look those guys in the eye, you know, like if we had a fitting, if I ran into any of them right now, they probably wouldn't even remember me, but I worked with them for a few months, you know, but I wouldn't even talk to them. I was so insecure at the time. But one day she's like, Hey, I'm hanging out with Steven. It's the day off. You want to come hang out with us? And I went over to the sunset marquee and, you know, I knew he was sober and I remember kind of interviewing him in a sense, like, dude, how do you be you and be so cool and still be this fantastic musician and this rock star and not get high? Like, how do I do it? And he kind of gave me a little sermon on, um, you know, what it was like to be a famous rock star and be wealthy and successful and creative and not do it with drugs. And that was really inspiring to me because if that guy, someone that cool that I grew up worshiping could be sober and not be lame, then I could do it. Just an interesting side note how that kind of came to be. But that's what led me into um, a career in fashion. As I started to work for her, we, we went on to work with a number of other bands and I assisted numerous other stylists in the industry until eventually I came out on my own and went on to style uh, tons of other bands. But it was my career was mostly built around music. So I was playing in bands at night and then during the day I was going off and dressing bands that were more successful than the ones that I was in, you know? And that's how I got into it. And I eventually, even though I thought the fashion industry as a whole was sort of pretentious and vapid and lame, to be honest. I never really bought into the whole like designer thing. And eh, I liked it visually, but eventually I started to see 
and fashion, the art behind all of that, you know, and some of the great designers of our time, how they really were geniuses and are geniuses of design and aesthetics and the way that those uh, garments are constructed and what they're made out of and who's making them. There's a real energy around clothing that's really well-designed and well-made. And that goes for architecture and all forms of art. So late into my career, I sort of woke up to it and was like, shit, I have a pretty cool job. There is actual artistic merit in playing with clothes and working with fashion, especially as it pertained to music, which as I said, most of my career was based on. So that's the fashion game and how I get into it. And then uh, 10 years into my career, I started a business called School of Style, which I still operate to to this day. It's we're ten years in business now, and we're the world's um, most successful school for training stylists. And so that's kind of my main job, Matt. Most people don't know that because it's not a lot on my social media and stuff. And I'm so excited about my podcast, but people always are like, "Hey, want to do this? Want to do that?" I'm like, "Dude, I got a day job. Like, I own a company." That's how I pay my bills for the most part is School of Style. So I eventually uh, stopped doing that, started my podcast, and then still have this school where I usher new talent, emerging talent into the industry who are people that are really passionate about fashion as a career and as art. To the second part of your question, what would my advice be? You know, it depends on whether you're talking to a man or a woman, I would say. Uh, That's not very politically correct. But if you look at the psyche of a male brain and a female brain, Uh, without all of the social constructs, there tends to be dominant motives that differ in terms of what your intentions are and goals are with how you look. Uh, With females, generally speaking, uh, it's more about um, sex appeal and appealing attractive to members of the opposite or same sex and being marketable in terms of a viable mate. Uh, And with men, it has a lot more to do with a lot more to do with status and uh, looking as if you're successful and have money and therefore are desirable to potential mates, et cetera. It's all mating ritual shit at the end of the day. But um, I'm trying to keep my dog from growling into the mic here. Sweetie, we're good. We're safe. Oh, no, we do. Yeah. <laughs> you might hear that on mic. You hear this little rumbling. It's not, it's not me and Matt. So, um, you know, so, you know, how, how do I look good? You know, it depends on what your motive is and what, what your lifestyle is. Frankly, what you do professionally. If you're someone who's an artist or an actor or musician, then your look is very much about marketing your art itself as a product and the way you look is your brand. And so you would approach that from a different uh, place than you would a guy like you who is producing content and producing art and you own your own company as an entrepreneur, but your motive is going to be different. So yeah. with all that said, uh, to, to generalize it and really put an umbrella and leaving the motives and all of that aside, I think what's a really good... Um, thing to do is come up with points of reference and build an archetype for yourself, sort of like a uniform. You know, I now at this point in my career, although I don't work um, predominantly within the fashion industry, I more have an online business that's based on fashion. I'm this podcaster. I kind of have my brand though. I have my archetype. It's a little earthy. I still dress fairly cool. I mean, I care about how I look. I, yeah. I buy designer clothing. Um, you know, my clothing's expensive. Not, I don't wear labels and things like that, but I like well-made, well-designed clothing. But I kind of have my uniform. It's a little bit earthy, little like tinges of hippie earthiness, but 
at the same time, I have kind of my, my nighttime uniform that might be more of a blazer or something like that. So I've sort of found my archetype or my character in a sense that feels true on the outside to what and who I am on the inside. So it suits what I do professionally. It suits my personality. It's a little quirky because I have a bit of a sense of humor. I'm not too serious about anything, so I don't dress that seriously. So for a guy like you, I would uh, approach you if you hired me as a stylist and I would say, okay, we need to find the icons that you really like. Like who are the uh, men's fashion icons or celebrities or musicians or actors or characters in films uh, that you're familiar with that you like? And then I would start to sort of pare those down and find the commonality between those and what it is about those. Are they rugged and masculine? Are they colorful and playful? I would find templates a template by which to start building Maddie's vibe. So you're not copying Ryan Gosling or Steve McQueen or Lenny Kravitz or whoever <laughs> that you might pick as a style icon. There, are, There's numerous and hundreds of them, if not thousands. But I'd find like, you know, who's the character that we want to build that represents who you really are, but also what you do socially and, you know, the clicks that you roll with and where you travel to and uh, if your life is more leisurely or it's more based in um, corporate or whatever, you know, so it depends on whether you're single, married, what you do for work, where you travel, what the climate's like. But more than anything, it's like, how do we get your outside to match your inside? Because to me, fashion is just, it's sort of, um, it's, it's like a sign that you wear out into the world that indicates to them what tribe you're in. And, and what the energy field of that tribe is and what your interests are. And it's a way that we communicate to one another, like, oh, I'm in your tribe and we might strike up a conversation. You know, so I mean tribalism in the most healthy sense. So if I see someone that kind of looks like me, it would indicate, oh, they probably like the same music, uh, the same films. Uh, maybe they're into the same lifestyle. Culturally, we, we're kind of a match where if I see someone who's r- rolling around and, full camo hunting gear or something, you know, they might not, it's not really my lifestyle. You know what I mean? When I go to places like where my dad lives, I, I, I don't see anyone that looks like me because I'm sort of out of place culturally there, mm. but I'm perfectly in place in Malibu, California, Venice, California, Hollywood, California, Manhattan, you know, different cities like that. I feel like, oh, there's a million guys around that kind of look like me. We're sort of in alignment um, to some degree in terms of our interests and uh, preferences. Cool. So I want to ask you one kind of question to kind of wrap this up or at least to get in that direction. Um, I want to dig into your podcast a little bit because obviously I'm starting to run a podcast and there's many people out there who are listening to this who may already run a podcast or who might be interested in building their own personal brand and doing this kind of thing. So as you went from, you know, going through the struggles you went through to recovering, to getting into style, to getting, you know, being in health all along the way, and then starting your own podcast. How have you done it? You know, how have you been building this brand? What have been the, the key things for you as you built this lifestyleist brand that you have? And what about it do you enjoy the most, you know? I'll, st- I'll reverse engineer the question. What I enjoy the most about it, dude, is twofold. One is that it pushes me to the boundaries of my own limiting beliefs and what I'm capable of accomplishing and the voice that I feel that I deserve to have in the world. And so it's a huge personal growth vehicle for me 
because I put myself out there in such a transparent and vulnerable way as a host and also as a guest on so many other shows. So I'm constantly pushing the envelope of what I think I can kind of get away with uh, in terms of transparency while still being accepted by <laughs> society at large, right? So it's at the, I find the more real I am, the more vulnerable, the more authentic, the more intimate that I am in podcasting and video content and all of this, that the opposite uh, of what my ego believes to be true or the net result of that, which is total rejection and being ostracized from the world because I show my warts, uh, is that I'm actually accepted and loved and appreciated even more. So that's been such a profound spiritual lesson for me to just be me and just do me and for better or for worse and just come what may. And it turns out what has come to be is that um, my connections with people are so much more real and fulfilling and that people seem to really be benefiting from what I'm doing. So that's, that's the main thing that I'm appreciative of. Secondarily, but equally, would be the relationships that I've been able to establish with people and the access to people that I have that I just, I mean, I want to say worship, that might be a strong word, but people that I, whose work and teachings I just so deeply appreciate and respect and people with whom I might not be able to get such personal interactions with if I weren't in this position. So, you know, I don't want to diminish it by saying it's the best marketing tool ever because it sounds so networky and sort of social climber-y, you know, but just to, you know, to sit down with a guy like Jack Cruz or, um, or Neil Strauss or Dave Asprey or some of the spiritual teachers, John Gray, Byron Katie, Sharon Salzberg. I mean, I went to New York City and went over to Sharon's house and just chilled with her for a couple hours. Like, who does that? <laughs> it's like, I couldn't just go to her website and say, hey, uh, I'm kind of into spirituality. Come, can I come hang out at your house in Midtown and just shoot the shit with you for a while? Like that, it doesn't work like that in the real world, you know? But because I know this guy and they know that guy and she knows this one and da, 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 next thing you know, there I am talking to someone really fantastic and not only having that experience myself, but hopefully sharing her message with people that have never heard of Sharon Salzberg. And there's probably people listening to this that have no idea who that is. But once they hear her work, which is profoundly um, transformative and if coming from the Buddhist tradition, that is one of the many traditions that I respect and have and have uh, valued in my own journey, that is just incredible to be able to do. So that's kind of the net result. And as I said, reverse engineering, going back to the beginning of the story, I had to work through so much self-doubt, dude, and so many insecurities of feeling uh, too dumb, undeserving. No one's going to listen to it. No one's going to care. I won't sound smart. I, I won't know how to do it, You know how to market it. Who would want to do my show? I'm a nobody. I mean, I had to go through all of those ghosts and demons of self-doubt in order to do it. And I think for me, what kept me pushing through that initial fear, and sometimes I still experience that when I approach someone new that I feel is kind of out of my league as a guest or some bullshit like that, is just, this is going to help people. Luke, this is going to help a lot of people. Because there's people that can hear me and the way that I translate my guest message that won't be able to hear the next guy or the next woman that does a show. You see what I mean? So I was valuing my own unique uh, method of translation where I can take a Jack Cruz that most people don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's too 
quantum, <laughs> you know, it's just next level. It's too scientific. Some people can, I can't. I mean, he runs circles around me. Uh, same thing. I interviewed the founder or one of the founders of Neurohacker Collective. They make my favorite uh, supplement called Qualia. And I had all my questions laid out for Daniel Schmachtenberger, the, the guy I went to interview. And it was hilarious because he's so, I don't want to say superior, but he's so intelligent. He just literally was like doing donuts around me the whole interview, not in a bad way, but I was just like, oh my God, this guy's brilliant. So he would say something and I go, so what you're saying is A, B, and C. And I think I was able to take someone like that that might be over a lot of people's head, including my own, and kind of bring their teaching down to uh, a bite-sized, practical, applicable um, methodology, right? And so um, in the beginning, I had to work through a lot of that. And in terms of strategy, what I did, dude, is I just, I got the biggest names I could in the very beginning. And I recorded about 15 episodes and I just acted like I was already the shit even though I didn't feel it on the inside. It was a complete like fake it until you make it thing. And I would approach people that I thought would say no. And as I started to approach people that were really big in the industry uh, as podcasters and just thought leaders, really no one said no. And to this day, I, I mean, maybe one or two people have declined for whatever reason. But I found that um, I was able to get access to a lot of people that had a name. And I used those first big name guests as anchors to get other big name guests. And once my show had gained popularity, then I didn't have to rely on those big names. And I can interview a guy like you from Philly that's 18. No one, you know, and with all due respect, no one in the podcast world at all at that point, maybe more so now, knew who the hell Matt Maruka was, you know, but I have the freedom to do that now. It's not about someone being famous. It's about who has the most profound and impactful message. number three. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And And it just goes to show. (laughs) It just goes to show. But what gave me the credibility in the beginning was those first few anchor guests that had big names. And I also, I felt that I had no credibility in this where a lot of the doubt was, even though I was already into health and wellness and spirituality at that point for 20 years, I didn't, no one had heard of me. I'm this guy who has a fashion school and had been a, you know, a fairly successful fashion stylist. So I used my credibility as like this Hollywood kind of fashion music guy who looks very different and sounds very different and has different branding than all the kind of health or spiritual content creators or curators and actually used my being different to my advantage. And I think I kind of impressed a few people on this side of the fence because they're like, well, this guy's different than your average podcaster. And so rather than um, being limited by my lack of experience or the fact that I'm only known in this other sort of niche industry, I, I parlayed that success and used that as leverage to gain traction on this side of it, on the health and wellness side. And now what's cool in the last couple of years, those have merged a lot more where celebrities are really into health and wellness and Wall Street and Silicon Valley are all into meditation and it's all just kind of coming full circle. Well, now everything I do on, on all sides of that is kind of come together in a way that's more widely accepted and seems more normal. Fantastic. I think um, on a side note, bridging the gap between Eastern wisdom and Western science, which is something that your show uniquely does, unlike you know many before it, just because the science simply hasn't been so developed, is a really interesting thing that is just emerging. And it's something that I look forward to doing a lot of throughout my life as things evolve. So this has been really cool, really interesting chatting with you and hearing about your story, hearing about all the stuff you've been through. 
Um, the final question I'd like to ask you ultimately is, although I tend to start with this one and I prefer to start with this one, why do you do what you do? What's the motivation behind living your life, working on the podcast? You know, really, I should ask, why do you work on the things you're passionate about more than anything? There's two whys for me that I think are most prominent and just intuitively come to mind. And this is why I love not having any of the questions up front because I'm, I'm going to answer everything much more honestly, having not had the opportunity to become calculated in my answer. Two motives, dude. One, Maddie, is just, like I said, every man's burden is the heaviest. There's a lot of people on earth in our history that have suffered a lot more than me. But for me, I've suffered a lot, mostly at my own hand. And I've experienced a lot of pain mostly emotionally in my life. And I've learned how to get out of it and turn it around and transmute a lot of that suffering and a lot of that pain into joy, success, inspiration. And a big part of what motivates me is helping to alleviate others' suffering because that's what's been done for me by the people that I've learned from. I I pick up principles of health and spirituality from the masters and I apply them to my life and whoa, snap, they work because that's what principles are. They're truths, they're universal truths that have always been true and will always be true throughout the known universe. Well, throughout the unknown universe as well. So as I've alleviated much of my suffering from applying those principles, it's like I feel beholden and almost indebted to source to God to share what has so freely been given to me. And some of it I've earned, but most of it's just grace to go share that. That's part of it. The other part of it is, and like I said, they're kind of in equal measure. The other part of it is that I really value this incarnation that I have in this meat suit that they called Luke's story on October 29th, 1970. And time is fucking ticking, buddy. And I want to get the most evolution that I can for my spirit while I'm here for however many years I'm here. So it's not about living longer. I'm not even into longevity. A lot of people, I want to live till I'm 500. I hope not. (laughs) Like, give me a new body. I'll come back in a few years and I'll have another journey, hopefully, according to what makes sense to me and the sort of Vedic worldview of, of consciousness. But it's like, I don't want to waste any more time in this incarnation because I really feel as though I've chosen the experiences that I've had, the circumstances of my life, and I've been set up at a certain time and space to evolve in the ways in which I'm evolving. And so what gets me up every day is to continue to evolve. And when I find things that work, to pass those along to other people who contextualize their human life experience in the same manner. So you're about evolution and growth Uh, of your soul. Well, hey, man, I've learned a few things. Do you have anything that I can learn from you? And that's what I'm all about. So half of it is sort of the service of others and alleviation of suffering. And the other half is I just want to go as far as I can go, man. I'm still about getting high (laughs) at the end of the day. It's just a real high. It's not a high where the lows are just being masked. It's a high where the highs are real and my consciousness continues to be elevated little by little. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Luke, for being on the show. I think that a lot of people who hear this will learn several valuable things. 
if even just about fashion, but about so many several other <laughs> That's topics. Funny that, we that you discussed. asked me about that because I, you know, I never even think about that part of the about the. Yeah, well, the journey. I think it's interesting, and I, I keep. I can't forget how you told me about the German dude at the paleo conference who was asking you about fashion. Honestly, I think that is so funny. He asked yeah, you, the EMF how can I pants. be more yeah, fashionable? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, homeboy was making some like EMF slacks and he's like, Hey, you, you were in fashion, right? So he said, yeah, what, what should I do to these work? They block EMFs. What can I do to make them look cooler? And I was like, easy, dude, get rid of those pleats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, I thought that was awesome. But anyway, Luke, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure we'll have you again. And it's awesome being able to learn from you and chat with you. And thank you so much for everything that you've helped me to accomplish personally, like getting to such an awesome place as Malibu with such awesome people around. Really appreciate uh, thank it. you, Matt. I appreciate you having me on, dude. And I, I appreciate your friendship and this honestly has been one of the most fulfilling conversations I've had in a long time. We really went deep and thank you for indulge, indulging me. very glad. Allowing me to, to delve into all these different areas. It's so fun to be That's able to share. That's the purpose of it. That's the purpose of a good, of a good show. So thank Thanks, you so brother. much, Luke. Look forward to chatting again soon. Hey, you. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on this very special bootleg episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As I sit and uh, listen back to some of this track, I realized like, wow, this is recorded a while ago. So many things have changed. You know, at the time of this recording, I had recorded, I think I was celibate for a year. And wow, I went for a long time even after that. And a lot's transpired and not only that area, but so many before. And it's fun to do these recordings sometimes and listen back and go, oh my God, so much has changed. You know, it gets to, uh, it gets to be where you're in just constant flux and it's fun to have timestamp recordings of some of these life transitions and then listen back to them. Now, ideally I wouldn't record a show and have it wait so long to come out, but this one was just such a fun and special occasion and if nothing else just for the fact that it was recorded at a studio that's shaped much of my musical history as a fan and as a listener so to sit down in Shangri-La and have the opportunity to record there and get a tour of the studio and see so much of the original gear from when the band the band the band uh, I think owned or operated that studio it's just it's just insane it's just that's a cool piece of rock and roll history so to sit there as someone who's worked out my dark and sordid rock and roll past and I'm living in the light these days it was a really fun experience and I just love Matt he's a great friend and um, you know just a cool guy to sit down and talk to so much so in fact that on Tuesday as I said we'll have an episode it's a current real lifestyleist podcast episode where I sit down and talk to Matt for about three hours about all kinds of funny ass shit and also uh, his deep research into light, sunlight versus junk light, etc. So that's going to be a really fun show to catch on Tuesday. And let's take a moment to thank our sponsors, Candor. And uh, you can go to choosecandor.com, enter the code lifestylist and save 10% and get your juve going by going to juve.com forward slash Luke, enter the code Luke at checkout. Get a little gift there. And it goes without saying, you can check out Matt's company, Raw Optics. That's rawoptics.com, R-A, optics. And you can use the code Lifestylist there to save 10% off his super fashional, badass blue blocking eyewear. You can also find all of our sponsors at all times over at lukestory.com forward slash store. And most of the sponsors and brands that I slang over there provide you with unique discount codes so you get a discount 
company gets a new customer, and in some cases, I get a commission to help me pay my team and keep this thing going. So it's a trifecta win. See, my dog Cookie even is excited about it. She likes to biohack a lot. So thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I can't wait to drop Tuesday's show back at you with Matt Maruka. It's a fun one. Make sure you don't miss it. And I'll see you soon. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.